and our CEO, Phil Sutherland, is a type one diabetic and he okay. was a professional cyclist. And as a child, he noticed how when he cycled, he, you know, it would control his diabetes better. And then he got, you know, loved cycling and then got involved in cycling, became a professional cyclist and started to see the benefits of better glucose control. And then when continuous glucose monitors came out, he started to see the power of this and raise into this. And then he started team type one, which is now team Nova Nordisk, um, the professional cycling team, you know, all diabetic cycling team. And, you know, they did really well once they had visibility of their glucose levels on their head units. How did you come upon Super Sapiens or what's your first touch point with them? I actually came across it as a user. So I wanted to use a CGM. I've been wanting to use one for a couple of years for different reasons. I'm in the you know medical space. I was very interested. Um, some people would call me a biohacker. I hate the term, so I'm going to avoid <laughs> it. But I wanted to get a CGM and get to December and I'm looking again. And I think I Googled you know, CGM for athletes and all of a sudden I see the Super Sapiens. Like, what is this? This sounds perfect. And I started looking into it and I'm like, oh, this is exactly what I need. This, this, is, this, is, what, this is me. I need this. Welcome to the Roadman Cycling Podcast. My name is Anthony Walsh. Six days a week, we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you on your journey towards health, happiness, and longevity. Now let's get into the show. It's episode 569 of the Roadman Cycling Podcast. I have a fascinating guest today, Dr. David Lipman. He is the man inside Super Sapiens, which is a company I'm fascinated with at the moment. I love innovation in cycling. And for a long time, look, I've been in this sport. I've grown up in this sport. My dad was fixing bikes for as long as I can remember when I was a kid coming home from school. And for so long, we were starved of really cutting edge tech developments. And there's companies coming along right now yeah, you know what? I don't think they're perfect, but I think they're making strides in a direction which I'm very welcoming of. And Super Sapiens is one of these companies. So Super Sapiens is a continuous glucose monitor. You wear a little patch on your arm and it gives you live stream of your blood sugar levels. From that, we can make all sorts of inferences. This is step one in what's going to become a dashboard for what's going on inside in our bodies. We have power meters, we have heart rate monitors. This is the next dimension. And I'm super excited to hear what direction the tech is going, current applications for it, detractors, critics. It's a pretty laid bare conversation with a really interesting, intelligent man, Dr. David Lippman. Today's podcast, it's sponsored by Elements. When I was on the Irish team a few years ago, we would constantly get tested for our hydration levels. Now, this was done through a urine sample in the morning and in the evening, and oh my gosh, it was difficult to hit a perfect hydration score. You see, hydration isn't just about drinking water. Having proper hydration status means having adequate fluids present in your body. This fluid balance depends on many factors, including intake and excretion of electrolytes. For us athletes, when we sweat, the primary electrolyte we lose is called sodium. Cyclists can lose up to 7 grams per day. When sodium isn't replaced, it's common to experience muscle cramps and fatigue. I've been using elements to manage my hydration levels and I've seen huge improvements. I know that personally, if I'm hydrated, I sleep better and my energy levels are boosted. I'm in good company as Element is used by US Olympic teams, NFL, NBA and dozens of professional sports teams across the board. And you can try it totally risk-free. If you don't like it, Element will give you your money back, no questions asked. Plus, Element wants to give you a free gift with any purchase through the link drinklmnt.com forward slash roadmancycling. That's drinklmnt.com forward slash roadmancycling. I'm going to leave the link in the description below. You'll get a free Element sample pack, which includes one pack of every flavor, which is perfect for anyone who wants to try out all their flavors in one go. Okay, without further ado, let me jump in to Dr. David Lippman. David, welcome to the Roadman Cycling Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Uh, we were chatting a little bit off air about our sort of shared journey. I don't think we've been on the, the same train track, but we've been running a kind of parallel train track where we both trained for a long time in academia and then opted out of that academic pursuit. It's interesting because I was speaking to a friend recently and his son has just finished a leave insert over here, which is our like end of uh, high school sort of junction point where you step off into university. And he, he had a really good results and has the pick of quite a few good college courses, but he wants to work with his hands. And there's such a stigma around working with your hands if you're an academic. And I'm not sure if this was your experience, but for me, 
I never seen myself as an academic, but I always had good results. And as you get good results, like I got a, a first class undergrad, as you get a first class undergrad, nobody's saying like, oh, you should be a bricklayer. You should be a chippy. They're all saying like, okay, well, it's law, it's it's medicine, it's, you know, maybe finance. And you have two or three options and then you get past your master's and you get a good master's and it's like a professional qualification. Now you definitely only have law or medicine. And I don't know if I ever even wanted any of those things. I was living out somebody else's roadmap for me, but I just hadn't got the, the EQ to understand that. Yeah, I remember finishing school, similar situation. I actually wasn't that good academically. Um, I was probably that tier down from there, but uh, my best friend you know, got a really good uh, equivalent of, you know, it was called an overall position OP rank in Australia when I graduated at the time. And they, everyone said to him, oh, so you're going to go do like, you know, medicine or law? And he's like, no, I'm actually going to go do international hotel tourism and management. And people were like, what are you doing? <laughs> what are you doing? And he's like, oh, I want to manage a hotel. Like, what, what's the problem? And people were losing it. So, like, you know, people would say things like, don't waste that mark as though, yeah. you know, you can't be smart and do something that isn't considered, you know, traditionally academic. And I think... To be honest, if anything, the way the world's moving, maybe it's post-pandemic, maybe it's, um, you know, the rise of Web3 or whatever. But I think people are now starting to appreciate actually, you know, maybe those those things are good if you're interested in them and you need to be passionate about them. But they're not necessarily um, the way you should be pushing people who have good marks academically. And to be honest, a lot of the good doctors I work with, not all of them, but a lot of the good doctors I work with had done something else first and then had come to medicine later and, you know, I'd, my bias is that that's helpful because that's what I did, but, uh, you know, perhaps not. I think it's super helpful in pursuits like medicine and law. It's one of my pet peeves with law. And, you know, don't worry, listeners, we will get back to talking about cycling and <laughs> uh, super sapiens, continuous glucose monitors. But one of my pet peeves is law is traditionally a super upper class pursuit, as is medicine. Now, there's very few really working class guys or girls make it true, but it is... Private schools filter into the big universities, filter into the big master's programs, filter into the professional qualifications. But and in itself, there's no problem with that until you get to the end and then there's a debate, you know, a philosophical debate about a direction to go. And there's only one socioeconomic viewpoint represented in that debate. It's everybody like middle-aged fat white dudes are the only voice heard in certain debates and it's like what we should have representation across the full spectrum yeah. no i 100 percent agree with that and when you're trying to relate to people be it a um, a client you're serving as a lawyer or a patient you're serving as a doctor like if you can't relate to them that's a problem and you need to be able to relate to them so there is a lot of benefit in having a more diverse um, group of people doing it but to be honest as an outsider and i'm going to alienate the whole listening audience now as an outsider looking into cycling i see it as pretty similar like the old fat white dudes running it like anime van vluten almost she got a fine for her socks like what are we talking about is sock length is measured why are we measuring sock lengths i understand like i'm a sports scientist like i understand that or maybe there's some you know implications for aerodynamics and stuff like just stop it don't measure them who cares like a couple of inches doesn't make a difference. I was talking to, and uh, it's a podcast I'm really excited about doing, the founder of the Amani Project in Kenya. I'm not sure if you've been following this, but it's a, it's a brilliant pursuit. He has a race over there, which I'm hoping to get over to next year, called Migration Gravel Race. And the idea, he's a human rights lawyer. He takes all the extra cash he makes that doesn't support himself and his family, and he puts it into this team. Total legend philanthropist, giving these kids in Kenya a break. But he figured out at a certain point that the amount of money he could raise like he could bring maybe 10 kids from Kenya to Europe. He could bring 15, but he can't bring 6,000. It's just, he just can't afford that. And he can't get the machinery together to raise enough cash to bring them over. So he said, let's bring Europe to Kenya. So he came up with this idea of the migration gravel race where he tries to bring some of the best riders in Europe, gravel guys like Lawrence Tenda, Pete Stedna, Ian Boswell. He tries to bring these guys to Kenya and then he can bring, you know, 500, 600 local Kenyan kids to race against them. And it's an amazing project. You'd love it as well. It's worth checking out because I know you've an uh, interest in marketing now. He's marketed this team just brilliantly on a tight budget and it's just made it so cool. It's like a, it's a Rafa feel before Rafa fell the far side the line and just became a dentist brand. It's really, really cool. Yeah, I like that. I love that. Um, I guess where we're getting to, you know, with the tools we have, social media, podcasts, et cetera, that leverage you can create for yourself on nothing, like no real um, budget and you can create 
all sorts of uh, buy-in and hype. If you've got a good enough story, a good enough brand and things that people want to you know, get involved with, I think it's really cool. I like where we're, we're headed in that regard. That's why when I think about why I still love the podcast, I was talking to him last day about just how basic life is uh, in Kenya at this race and why I kind of love the podcast. And it's, I remember sitting down at the kitchen table, chatting with my mom, chatting with my dad, and dinner time was kind of sacred because you tell stories. And if you pull that back a couple of hundred years, you sit around the fire and you listen to stories from your elders. You know, we've obviously had this crazy iteration in tech over the last 20 years specifically. And now we tell stories in a different way where you can reach more people. But it's essentially, that's what it is. It's storytelling. And some of the big brands maybe lose sight of that at times and they're, you know, hooked up on, you know, where is the latest Instagram algorithm hack? But if you stay true to storytelling, you look at some of the big podcasters we talked about, Rich Roll, Joe Rogan, they just tell stories. Yeah, and there's there's a lot of good learning that you do from stories. I mean, in medicine was a good example was all of the advice we got was always make it into a story and you'll remember it. Like understand what happens when you get a bacterial infection, understand the story from your body's perspective. What's the story being told? What happens in what order? And then you'll remember it. So storytelling is an innate part of how we shared information um, and you can, whatever religion you want to say, you, you want to subscribe to, like there's always a story component to it. Uh, and there's some consistent stories in there as well amongst different religions. So, um, you know, those have been historical ways in which we passed information on between people, that's for sure. And I'm actually fascinated with this because I've been looking at kind of leaders and not necessarily leaders in a good sense, leaders in any sense. So you have, you know, depending on your religion, you might view Jesus as an amazing leader or otherwise, but you have Jesus. Most people view Hitler as a pretty bad leader, but again, he mobilized a massive amount of people, but you can see commonalities in it. So a charismatic leader came along and he offered them a different opportunity. Like Hitler didn't come along and say, oh, hey, I don't like Article uh, 2B in the Treaty of Versailles. He's like, no, this is not fair. I'm ripping up the whole thing. And then he offered them a future that looked entirely different. And it's sort of those three commonalities that a lot of our leaders do. And if you look at the storytelling that some really cool brands, and this is a nice segue into Super Sapiens, because if you look at those three elements, that's actually present in a lot of the storytelling across the brands who are doing it super, super well. And I think Super Sapiens is one of these brands that is doing it well. So I want to dive in and see, like, how did you come upon Super Sapiens or what's your first touch point with them? So thank you for the compliment. And, you know, there's been many people who've worked on our branding and our brand um, who would be very happy to hear that. So, so thank you on their behalf. Um, I actually came across it as a user. So I wanted to use a CGM. I'd been wanting to use one for a couple of years for different reasons. I'm in the you know medical space. I was very interested. I'm, some people would call me a biohacker. I hate the term, so I'm going to avoid <laughs> it. But um, nonetheless, I'm you know into it. I'm you know wearing aura rings and tracking run metrics and doing all sorts of stuff. Yeah, so I'm the same. <laughs> um, so I wanted to get a CGM. And you know at the time, if this was late 2020, so at the time, Super Sapiens hadn't quite launched yet. And I, you know, I'm talking about you know, late 2020, I'm looking at, okay, I'll get a Freestyle Libre, happy days, no worries. And then I was like, oh, do I want a Dexcom? I'm trying to decide. And then it gets to December and I'm looking again. And I think I Googled you know, CGM for athletes and all of a sudden I see the Super Sapiens. Like, what is this? This sounds perfect. And I started looking into it and I'm like, oh, this is exactly what I need. This, this, is, this, is what, this is me, I need this. And at the time, and to this day, we still weren't available in the Netherlands where I was living at the time. And... I was like, how do I get involved? And then I reached out to be a brand ambassador and I was like, and then I sent him an email as well. I was like, hey guys, like, this is what I'm planning to do. This is my background. And they said, okay, come on as a brand ambassador. So then I could get access. So now I'm using Super Sapiens. Really happy, got involved with them. We're talking to them. In the early days, we had these calls where you know, users would just speak to people from the company and each other to try and educate each other. And one of the guys turned to me at one point and said, you seem like you know something here. Like you, you, you seem educated in the space. What, what's your background? I said, oh, I'm a doctor and I'm an exercise physiologist. And, I'm interested in the space and do this. He said, well, would you be interested in joining us? I said, of course. So I came on um, in a role across science and marketing to help marketing tell science stories and help science sort of develop things for marketing, but also with a view to coaching a little bit as well of how does a coach want to use this? How do we involve it? And, and you know, as an athlete myself, was how, you know, can I give product feedback as well as, you know, the ultimate beta tester? So that's been really fun to, to have, mix all those skills together and do that. And just to unpack and break some of those terms for people that aren't familiar at all, continuous glucose monitor is what we're talking about when you use the acronym for it. Yeah, CGM, sorry. So I want to break it back down to somebody who has basically no touch point with this and is kind of thinking, oh, what are these lads talking about? Well, like, why would I want to measure my blood sugar? What's the point? Yeah, it's a really good question. So I guess 
taking it even a step back is, you know, what is, what is, how much blood sugar do we have and what is it and all these things, right? So you've got about a teaspoon of sugar in your blood at any time. Uh, and it's obviously continuously updated as it's continuously used. Um, you store sugar in the form of glycogen, uh, as many people would have heard, many of your, your um, listeners would have heard. And there's two stores for this. There's the muscle where it's, you know, once it's stored there, it stays there and gets used there. And then there's liver glycogen, which is in the liver, and that can be mobilized all over the body. And that can help top up muscle glycogen when it gets low, or it can help service the brain or the heart, wherever we are there. So historically, um, you know, there are many diseases uh, associated with sugar, uh, various ones, probably the most commonly known of uh, diabetes of different forms. There's obviously type two diabetes, um, formerly known as adult onset, often related to metabolic syndrome. And then there's type one diabetes, which is, you know, formerly child onset diabetes where people have no insulin that's being made. In type two diabetes, they're resistant to insulin and in type one, they're not making much. So they had to measure blood sugar to then dose their insulin based on that. And our CEO, Phil Sutherland, is a type one diabetic and he okay. was a professional cyclist. And as a child, he noticed how when he cycled, he, you know, it would control his diabetes better. And then he got, in, you know, loved cycling and then got involved in cycling, became a professional cyclist and started to see the benefits of better glucose control. And then when continuous glucose monitors came out, because that wasn't too long ago, um, he started to see the power of this and raise into this. And then he started team type one, which is now team Nova Nordisk, um, the professional cycling team, you know, all diabetic cycling team. And, you know, they did really well once they had visibility of their glucose levels on their head units. So that was the genesis of Super Sapiens, which is, oh, if this works for people with diabetes, his view is this will work for people without diabetes. So understanding your glucose and really managing it and controlling it is the unlock for people to really start to change their nutrition around, be it in race or out of race. I got super interested when I was reading a study and, you know, as a biohacker, you've probably heard of the Blue Zones, but for our listeners, it's uh, areas around the world where it's the highest concentration of centurions, people that live beyond 100 years of age. So we're looking at areas like Okinawa in Japan, Sardinia in Italy. But there was one study into it that I read and on top of my head, I can't remember the study. If I find it, I'll link it up in the show notes. But they were talking about one of the, the greatest indicators of how long you're going to live is the number of blood sugar spikes you have across your lifetime. And I was like, well, that's super interesting, but I have no way of known like was something that's traditionally high glycemic index we would think spikes our blood sugar so it was an interesting study but for me i was like beyond eating a somewhat moderately low glycemic index diet when i'm off the bike i don't know how i can read anything into this study this is some of the questions we often get which is well if i isn't this the same for everybody and isn't it the same all the time in which case i don't really need to use super sapiens right so there is a large inter individual variability, so difference between individuals and intra-individual differences. So your response will not always be the same. Directionally, those things are often very similar between individuals and within an individual, but they will change. So some examples of this, bananas are a pretty classic one. Most people eat a banana and get a huge increase in glucose uh, in the, you know, the measured glucose, which is actually not from the blood. It's from a fluid that's closer to the muscle called the interstitial fluid that sits between blood and muscle. Um, so we'll use the term blood glucose, but it's technically not quite there, uh, not quite correct. So they'll eat a banana and get a, a spike, you know, an increase in blood glucose, but some people don't necessarily see such a big increase and some people will have the same response to an apple, whereas others won't. So it starts to be an inter-individual you know, difference, but then within the individual, you'll find that if you've done, say, a long ride the day prior, your responses the next day will be very much blunted. They'll be a lot lower. You can eat a lot while you're exercising without much change in your glucose levels uh, because of the way that it's absorbed. So there's two ways to absorb glucose fundamentally or two ways it's, it's um, processed. So when you're at rest sitting here now, if you eat glucose or if you eat carbohydrates, which eventually be broken down to glucose, uh, the way for you to get that out of the blood and where it needs to go is via insulin, which is a hormone. Uh, as I mentioned, type 1 diabetics don't produce this. They have to take it themselves exogenously, whereas you and I produce it from our pancreas. This allows the transporters to be there. And the analogy I heard used recently, which I thought was a good one, is if you think of your cells as a room, the door to let them in is this transporter. Insulin is the key that unlocks the door. Okay, that's great. great. So now the key unlocks the door. The glucose can come in. Happy days. When you're exercising, sorry, and, and insulin acts on all tissues of the body, so it acts everywhere. So when you eat glucose or when you have glucose in the blood, there's insulin, you can absorb it everywhere, which is helpful. When you're exercising, there's a disproportionate need for glucose in the muscles. 
because they're exercising you need it there. There is an insulin independent mechanism to unlock the door. And this is muscle contraction. So when your muscles are contracting, you can absorb glucose into the muscle without the need for insulin. So as a result, if you're having a larger intake and exercising, it's getting pulled straight into the muscles to be burned and used. So that's the quick answer. So would it be fair to say insulin is like a, a decision hormone? It's deciding whether we need this as a fuel or if it's going to be going storage in liver, muscles, glycogen, or as at some point, you know, when our liver muscles are all full with glycogen, what's happening to extra? That's just getting stored as fat, I assume. Yeah, spot on. So insulin, it's it's not a decision hormone, although that's a really cool way to look at it. I think it, it's, you know, classically quoted as a storage hormone. And there's a decision, okay. you know, the body sort of uses the, the decision sort of comes into the balance of different hormones. So um, adrenaline is a good example. So if you've got high insulin, say you've just eaten, but then a tiger comes for you and you get a spike of adrenaline, it's no good to be storing that glucose. You need that. So it kind of overrides it and you can get this, you know, sort of it's the net equation of all of the hormones and it's always a bit more complicated. And I was once told as a, as a young coach, you know, the beginner understands in black and white and the expert understands in shades of gray. So trying to keep it pretty black and white for, for perhaps the uninitiated with the caveat that it's always a bit more complicated. And I always say that metabolism is more of a dimmer switch than it is a light switch, right? It's, it's more on it. It's higher and lower, not on and off, but for the purposes of simplicity, yeah, fundamentally, it's like the net effect of all these things. Insulin's fundamentally storage. When you get adrenaline, it'll mobilize things. Um, there is another hormone that works to balance your glucose uh, in opposition to insulin specifically called glucagon. So when your glucose goes low, you'll secrete glucagon to get, uh, you know, to, to mobilize glycogen stores into glucose or to create new glucose from things like uh, amino acids. I love that analogy because we you mentioned Web 3.0 a while ago. It's kind of my, you know, off the podcast, it's my guilty pleasure uh, crypto stuff and doing it for years. But it's almost one of those things like the more you know, the less you know. And the deeper you go, you're like, oh my God, I don't understand this at all. Uh, but is there a minimum effective dose? So you talked about the importance of exercise in this whole process of insulin, glycogen coming in. Like if I don't want to spike my blood sugar, but I decide to eat my dinner walking down the street, at the same time am i drawn into the exercise pool or what's the minimum effective dose is it a heart rate threshold or what has to happen yeah so we'll touch on this and then go back to the blue zones because i think there's some stuff there that we can unpick that'll be similar that'll that'll tie in well the minimum you don't have to be walking while you're doing it so you can walk just afterwards so we've got a great blog article on this like 10 best ways to to sort of manage these spikes and that's the interesting thing is it's not bobby Ulich said this to us on our podcast which i thought was really insightful is it's not no and oh it's no and K-N-O-W. So it's not about don't eat that. It's about how do you manage that, right? And it's not one of the things I think uh, we do differently is we're pro-fueling as a company. We're pro-intake. And it's really important in the endurance space because so many people are under-fueling in the endurance space. It's not even funny. Um, so it's as simple as a 10-minute walk post-dinner. So if you think about traditional cultures, perhaps blue zones or otherwise, and the things that help limit uh, increases in glucose, it's it's high amounts of physical activity, but not necessarily exercise, just being moving around. So physical activity, it's things like eating salads with olive oils and vinegars prior to eating a carbohydrate heavy meal, which again, if you look at these traditional cultures, there's a lot of that. Um, you know, it, it's that sort of stuff where it really makes the difference. So um, the other things I think that will help limit the number of increases in glucose, you'll see whether you want to call it a spike or something else, would be having good sleep. Because if you don't have good sleep, the next day your insulin sensitivity and you uh, will be reduced. So you'll have higher glucose and more spikes. Uh, and again, we know sleep is correlated with longevity, right? I was playing around with, uh, you know, an amazing study to have to do for myself. I was playing around with having a pizza two nights in a row, but have a pizza on night A and then have a pizza the second night, but try something like uh, apple cider vinegar shot before or Ceylon cinnamon right before and see if the effect that has on blood sugar. But for me, I, I love the idea. I love any sort of iteration in this space because for so long, I think we've had really cool products and we've had sport and we've rarely had the Venn diagram in the middle intersecting to have cool innovation within sport. Like we're so far behind in so many things. And this is such a cool innovation. But for me, one of the criticisms I'd have of it is it's not recommendation driven enough. And maybe that's the the next iteration of the product. It leaves it down to someone like me to figure out and go, okay, 
you have your apple cider vinegar shot before your pizza. But did I really control all the other variables in this experiment well enough? Like, is my sleep the same? Was my training the same? And now it's what insights can I glean from this little study I'm making for myself? We've been stuck in trying to make something that's good enough at telling people, you know, the first question you get is, is this good or bad? Right? They show, hold you the phone and go, is this good or bad? And we're sort of trying to solve that problem. And the next problem is, what do I do with it? Yeah. Right. And that's where we're trying to get to next, which will be, we've got some really cool stuff coming out around um, being able to, you know, post-workout recommendations or better evaluation of what you're doing. And I can't say too much because our product team will kill me, but um, we have some <laughs> we have some cool stuff coming out in those regards about really trying to, you know, move the needle for people. In terms of how do you experiment with it, um, I think you've made a really good point, which is we've had historically, right, if you think about science, we've had these really controlled lab studies, and that's the lens we viewed science through. It needs to be double-blind, placebo-controlled, randomized, really clean in terms of limiting variables. And that's very reasonable and it's very helpful. Some of the challenge with that is generalizing it to a free-living person, right? So if I can tell you, you know, in a lab, this will happen, that's fine. But what happens when you're in the real world? The opposite yeah. is what we're starting to move towards now and Web3 is contributing is big data, right? So in a thousand people, if they eat a pizza and they call it pizza, we don't know what's on it, we see this. Here's the aggregate from that, right? And that's the opposite end of it. It's very messy. There's a lot of, lot of noise in that, not as much signal. But if there is a signal, it's pretty potent to think, actually, that's helpful, right? So we sort of sit somewhere between the two at an individual level, which is you don't have lots of data, but you have a lot of specific data to you and you have your life's data, right? So I was trying to test a couple of products against each other. One product that said, oh, you know, this is a super slow release. You know, we're great because we're a slow release. And another product that said, oh, we're super fast release. And I thought, well, let's test you guys against each other and see what happens. And That's a fun study. No, it is. I, my biggest passion, I've said this on our podcast, i said this on other podcasts, grab a super sapien sensor and test the nutrition you're interested in. Whether it's a chew versus a gel, whether it's a gel versus liquids, whether it's do I want 90 grams an hour or 70 grams an hour? Do I want 90 grams in big gulps or small sips? And how does this all affect me? Because all of that can change it, right? Uh, James McDonald is trying to break the 24-hour velodrome world record. <laughs> Yo, it's grim. It is brutal, Ugh. especially when you have like, he had a fall and then he had to keep going and anyway. But speaking to James, what he found with the sensors is not that he changed the amount of carbohydrates he took, he changed the dosing frequency. So now he's found that breaking his aerodynamic position to fuel more frequently improves his glucose, but improves his output numbers as well and his performance. And he's done all these numbers to do that. So it's counterintuitive, right? You shouldn't be breaking arrow if you're trying to break a velodrome world record. It's funny because that that sort of problem we alluded to, it's not a uniquely super sapiens problem. This is an industry-wide problem at the moment because I wake up and I look at my aura ring in the morning and it's given me so many different data points. And I'm like... Okay, so I have a threshold session two by 20 minutes to do today. I have all this data. How does it affect my threshold session? Do I now do two by 12 minute threshold? Do I do two by 10? Do I do a tempo ride? Or do I take a recovery day? It's like it needs to move from here's a bunch of data to prescriptive. And I think that's going to be the next iteration of Super Sapiens, plug an immature, today's plan, plug an immature or a ring to give a solid recommendation. Yeah, and you know that's 100% where things are headed. I think if we listen to customer feedback, the customer feedback is always pretty similar. Like when, when are you going to integrate with this or when do you want to integrate with that? And I think integrations is helpful, but I think just having all your data in one place, you still need to be a level of um, detective. You still need to really understand that. So, okay, my, my HRV is down. Uh, and I performed badly today, but was that because of my glucose or my HRV or how do we understand these together? And, you know, you really need a, and there are many companies building dashboards. Don't get me wrong. There are thousands of companies building dashboards and trying to do this. It's just really difficult, um, really difficult to do it, especially when you don't have a level of knowledge, right? Um, you can just point at correlations and that maybe helps people, but then you also become the butt of every joke on the internet when the correlation is spurious and, and yeah. opposite to what you would assume. So um, we're definitely working on those sort of things though. I think a difficult place with all the data as well, heart rate variabilities and behind the podcast, we actually have a coaching company and I, I coach a small number of athletes still and I'll chat with the athletes like HRV is down. I'm like, do your session. Like you need to reconcile modern science and all this data that we have with the sort of 
primal fact that cycling is a hard sport where you need to go out for long hours, be exposed to the elements and do difficult things. And these two, there needs to be a coming together of both them, a softening of the hardcore position, but also a more realistic interpretation of the data. Because if every time I had a less than optimum sleep, I decided I wasn't going to go into work, I'd be still on podcast number four at the moment. So there's a, a real life lens we need to view the data through as well. Yeah, 100%. And I, you know, I'm a pretty meticulous tracker of my HRV and the things that, you know, I ran Berlin Marathon a little while ago. Uh, the day after the marathon, my HIV was fine. But if I do six or seven Zoom calls in a day, my HIV will be in the gutter the next morning. The question <laughs> is, okay, so so if the exercise isn't particularly stressful in terms of my recovery, then should I be skipping sessions or should I be trying to skip Zoom calls? Where What's going to move the needle for you? And yeah. that's not the same for everybody. Some people run 10Ks and all of a sudden they, they are cooked, right? And that's fine. Like, I get that. But we need to have that level of interpretation of the data. And, and to some extent, you probably need to work with someone on this. And it's something that we're trying to help people with is can we upskill coaches to really then, you know, and nutritionists to help interpret CGM data for athletes. Um, we've got a dashboard that pulls in um, Training Peaks paid accounts. So you can see that we've got an integration with a French company called Nolio, which is basically French Training Peaks or similar. And so you can then, and it, our glucose data goes there. So you can interpret your glucose data in context of heart rate and power and all those things, which is super helpful because those things do change glucose. Um, but we still don't have a, like a really good holistic view because once you once you start using Super Sapiens, you start to see like, you know, everyone uses it for exercise, right? So they go, okay, here's my exercise window. I understand this now. And then you go, okay, let's take it a window out and you go to the hour pre or post or all these things. You start to slowly expand your, um, your viewing window. But then what you start to realize as you go for longer and longer is, oh, actually, Stuff I was doing two, three days ago is impacting me today, right? If I didn't eat enough two, three days ago and I trained hard and I haven't refueled properly, that's impacting me now. We've got athletes who are saying, actually, I noticed that when my average glucose is down for the day, that means I've been underfueling or overtraining for a while. Interesting. And that's been really interesting for us. Kind of like HRV to some extent is if your baseline is changing, particularly sleep glucose, athletes are saying, hey, that's a bit of a canary in the coal mine for us to really consider what we're doing. Um, and maybe it's a climatic change because altitude will change glucose. Uh, but it, it may also be other stuff. I'm fascinated with the thread that links top performers, those who succeed from those who don't. The single biggest indicator as to whether a roadman coaching client hits their goals or not, it's whether they use a power meter. As a coach, it gives me access to a world of data. Coaching without a power meter, it's like going out sailing without a compass. The brand I've used for a decade and the one I recommend to clients every day of the week is Stages. And I'm super happy to now have Stages as a show sponsor. It's water resistant, plus or minus 1.5% accuracy, 200 hours battery life off a single coin cell battery and handmade in Boulder, Colorado. I'm trusting Stages. I have for over a decade and the best in the world have trusted it, including five Tour de France victories and counting. If you head over to stagescycling.com and use code ROADMAN at checkout, that's going to get you 20% off full price parameters and factory install service. That's stagescycling.com and use the code ROADMAN at checkout. What's the demographic of users you have using the product at the moment? I mean, you could probably guess it. At the moment, it's predominantly endurance sports, um, mostly Ironman. Uh, I think cycling's our second, running's our third. Um, you know, almost all... 35-ish plus, like sort of that 30 to 50, you know, endurance sport, white collar, um, you know, Anglo-Saxon probably, you know, so it, it very, and, and, and male dominated, unsurprisingly, uh, given that it's a tech gadget and it's, you know, food related. So it, it's, it's an area of concern for us. We're pushing actively into trying to gain more diverse user groups. Um, we're pushing into team sports. I mean, we have quite a few team sports users that we can't really talk about, but, you know, Formula One, uh, football uh, in the highest levels, uh, basketball highest levels, um, those sort of things. That they're all using it, but you know a lot of them have that they know what they're worth, so we can't really talk too much about them. I step back and I was looking. Say if you take bike brands, you know you have Cervelo, Giant, Specialized. They essentially just play musical chairs. They have the same customer base and they swap around from bike to bike over the course of a decade onboarding you know a small amount of customers probably around the same amount that they're losing and the the ecosystem wasn't grown for a long time but i looked at a company that i don't even love uh peloton and it was the first time that 
it was like, hold on, here's a company that's bringing a totally different vertical. Like I have like my aunt who's a chain smoker and drinks four days a week calling me up and going, hey, I got a Peloton. What sort of session should I do? And I'm like, she never called me up and be like, hey, I got a stages, you know, uh, here's my threshold power. But you fast forward six months down the line, all of a sudden she's buying a thousand dollar bike. All of a sudden she's buying a heart rate monitor. All of a sudden she's buying a power meter. You know, six months from now, she's going to be calling me up going, hey, I'm using Super Sapiens. What's the deal with this? Yeah, and yeah. that's all because of Peloton. So I kind of looked at that with the podcast and saw, okay, well, how can we bring in these sort of softer verticals that will age up? And that's why we have a lot of softer, non-hardcore cycling conversations just around health, happiness, and longevity. Yeah, and look, if I'm honest, uh, another podcast um, in, in a similar space is uh, That Triathlon Show. It's run by Scientific Triathlon. I'm going to check that one out. And... I'm, you know, I'm not interested in triathlon that much. I have a little bit because I know some of our athletes now, some of our elites. So now I'm, I've bought into their stories. But sans that, I'm not particularly interested in triathlon. But I, I know the, the guy who does the podcast. And I said to him, mate, the thing that gets me on your podcast is he gets really good guests talking about physiology. And that's where my head's at. I'm a nerd. So I'm like, oh, let's talk about training loads. And let's talk about HRV. And let's talk about respiratory muscle training. Like, so I listen for that. I don't listen to the triathlon-specific stuff, but I listen to that. And I think he does a good job of being triathlon specific, but general enough that I'm, as a sports scientist, just interested. And I think that's, uh, you know, I haven't listened to as much of your podcast as I'd have liked, but that's, you know, that's what you're talking about there, which is how do I bring this to somebody who's just one little bit tangential or one layer further out of the onion so that I can get a bigger onion in the long term. And you were mentioning that one of the you know most common feedback uh, messages you get is when are you doing uh, dashboards onto stuff like you know Wahoo, Hammerhead, etc. Is that rolled out already, or is that something in the pipeline? So we have. Uh, I'm going to say this because it's about to launch in the next day or so. We've got live glucose coming to Wahoo. Their new models. They're Rome two, I believe, and. Amazing. I'm not sure what else. I'm not going to speak too much. I know the Rome 2 is one of them. Uh, we're on a couple of head units. So you'll be able to see us live on the head unit. Um, we're already live on a lot of Garmin head units, but you, um, in both cases, you need your phone to work as a decoder. I think in, geez, I might be speaking out of time here. I think we might be directly into the Wahoo though, so you may not need your phone. I'm not sure about that. Please don't. I'm on Hammerhead, so it's still, it's still not helping me here. No, but uh, please don't kill me if uh, we're not direct into it. But um, obviously, we've got the energy band as well, which is a wrist born, a wrist wearable. Uh, I think you know Jack. Yes. And Jack uses his until now that we've got Wahoo, he can use us. But he's been using his um, energy band on his handlebars, and he's found that quite good because that doesn't need the phone. I use that. That was that was built for kind of Ironman in mind, uh, so battery life isn't an issue. But I use that for running as well. Uh, like I ran Berlin Marathon with it. It connects directly to the sensor, reads a glucose live, has alarms on it for different levels of glucose, which is kind of cool as well. So if you're talking about using Super Sapiens to fuel the Berlin Marathon, so we have our grams of carbohydrate intake per kilogram of body weight. Is there a you know, typical recommendation when I have any nutritionists on the podcast, they'll talk about it. You know, you'll get companies every now and then that'll come out and say, oh no, you can take 110, 120 grams you know, with a, something like a beta fuel or something like that. But typically we're around that 60 to 90 grams per hour. So you sit down in the week before Berlin and you build out this fueling strategy and you say, okay, well, here's what I need based on previous runs. But on the day, are you tweaking? Because your, your run into it is not going to be identical. You know, you might have slept poorly the night before with some anticipation of the Berlin Marathon because it's not a bike race that you do, you know, for a week. It's you're building up to this event for quite a while. So maybe sleep is an issue. Maybe you're, you know, some gastro problems that morning because you're a little nervous and you have too many coffees. And do you correct for that in real time then using your super sapiens or do you still have a fueling strategy that you stick rigidly to? Um, so some of it's limited by my ability to carry gels, right? I'm not a particularly good marathoner. I ran 245, uh, which is... Pretty decent. Yeah, yeah, people, you know, for people who are general runners, that's really good. And if you're an, like a serious runner, you're like, okay, yeah, you run. So yeah. I'm sort of in that weird middle ground. A buddy of mine who's the Irish record holder, he'd say you jog. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, I'm somewhere there, right? I'm somewhere between the two. And so one of the challenges for me at that level is we have to carry all of our nutrition. Uh, there is some nutrition on course, but it's always, there was two stations where you could get, no, one station where you could get gels and like three stations where you could get some, uh, some carbohydrate drink in Berlin. So I could have modified around that. Um, and I did keep an eye on my glucose and late in the race, if there was another table with some carbohydrate, I would have actually taken some because I was just getting towards a level where I wasn't super happy and a mouthful would have been great. But generally, I was actually quite high. And, and because I had worked on a fueling schedule and training and done so many simulation runs, and I've run 
three marathons in the last year, I had a really good handle on what my glucose would do uh, and where it would be for the most of the run. So I, I knew I'd be fine and I knew I'd get through it based on what I had, but I, towards the end at about 36 kilometers, I thought, you know, if there was a station right here, I'd probably grab something um, just to make sure I didn't go too low. It turned out going really well around a huge PB and, and felt really good through the end. So maybe I didn't need it. But so your feelings are nearly more based on the practicality of availability rather than exactly what you need. So yeah, exactly. I, I would have liked, well, I was taking 75 grams an hour. So I'm right within that sweet spot. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm a big dude. Uh, I'm like 5'10 and 82 kilos. So I'm big for a runner um, and big for an endurance athlete. And big for so, a 245 runner. Yeah. Yeah. If you normalize for body weight, if you normalize for, B, <laughs> if you normalize for BMI, I might be quicker than Kipchoge. But um, so, you know, I'm, I'm at the top end of, of weight. So what I would like to do is carry 90 grams, but the gels I use are only 25 grams, unfortunately. So that's probably the next step is can I find something else that's got more in it that allows me to take, get 90 grams an hour. I think that's the, the next level for me to try. Interestingly, you mentioned the sort of 110, 120. I have it on pretty good authority from a lot of our, um, a lot of our users or a lot of our elite athletes talking to them that, you know, 120 is kind of the new, the new 60. And there are people who are well above 120 and, and metabolizing it really well, which is surprising to me. And so what's the key to metabolizing that? It's like, if you're eating 120 grams of Haribo an hour, it's going to bring some serious gastro distress. Like it's a combination of different sugars to get it into the system. Definitely. So you need a mixture of glucose and fructose. There's no question about that. I mean, the original research around this was all around glucose and they said, you know, oh, 60 grams is the limit. And then they realized that if you added fructose, because it's a different transporter in the gut, that you could take more. So that's how that happened. And then it was sort of 60 to 90 was the thing. And then maybe two years ago, there was a paper on trail runners and they said, oh, they took 120 grams an hour and they found decreased uh, markers of, of muscle damage the following two days. And then everyone went, hang on a second, why are we using 120 and we can use 120? So then all the athletes started doing it. And you know, the, the pointy end of the spear is always doing stuff that trickles down, right? Yeah. Formula one is the best example of that, but let's be honest, it's happening in endurance sports and some of that's legal and some of it's illegal and we'll ignore the illegal stuff, but in the, the league, yeah, well, I mean, it's the reality. In the legal stuff, um, you know, they're, they're pushing nutrition protocols. So there is um, basically the way to do it is you need to eat a lot of carbohydrates habitually and you need to train with quite a few as well to get your gut ready. And in cycling, it's a lot easier because you're not, moving your gut, you have abilities to carry large amounts compared to running, right? Whereas I'm bobbing up and down for two hours and 45 minutes trying to carry, you know, a belt full of gels, it becomes a bit ridiculous. So but I know what Super Sapien shone a light on for me is I got into a habit. So I was, when I was riding the bike full time, I was training with, you know, world tour guys with 10 years experience. And the custom became just have a big breakfast. And no matter what ride we're doing, if it's a four hour ride, we're going to stop the calf after two hours. If it's a six hour ride, we're going to stop the calf after three hours. So you'd basically just kind of suffer the last 30, 40 minutes into the calf, get a big feed at the calf, cake, you know, maybe a sandwich, couple of coffees, and then ride home. And the calf is unique because it's, it's kind of social as well. So it's nice to stop there. But it was also it's like the, the rest stop on a marathon as well. It's that's something you look forward to. And I just super safe and shone a light on me going, that's just not a practice. If I'm trying to maximize, like if I'm looking at it through, say, a financial lens, and I'm looking for a return on investment. If I'm trying to maximize my available training time, sure, I can get through a six-hour ride with that fueling strategy. But if I fueled and hydrated properly, I can get through the same ride and my training is going to be X level higher, which is going to give me X adaptation more for that same training book, just give me a higher ROI on my uh, allocated training time. Yeah, hundred percent. And look, I, I experienced similar stuff, right? One of the reasons I run is it's it's efficient, it's easy. Like you know, you only need a GPS watch, a heart rate monitor, a glucose monitor, shoes, a belt, and you know, all these things. But no, the, the, the standard joke. The standard <laughs> joke is you only need a pair of running. Yeah, the standard thing is you only need a pair of running shoes. But I've never seen a runner only running in running shoes. But anyway, the you know, so I was running and I go out for my Sunday run, right? And you you know you pray at the church of the long run on a Sunday, so you go for your long run. You do two and a half hours, three hours of running, and it's like, oh, I don't need it. It's only aerobic, right? So you do three hours. And then I come home and be a mess. And I'd be on the couch and I would not be able to function much the rest of the day. I'd be starving when I got home. And I sort of started looking at my glucose. I was like, well, geez, it gets low. Maybe I should eat a bit more. And it's like, it's so ridiculous because I, I know the research. I know what I should be eating. So then I start fueling all of a sudden on my long runs. And all of a sudden I get home and I'm like, chipper, 
my partner's like, what are you doing, Dave? Like, we, all of a sudden we can go do things on a Sunday. We, I don't have to like just nurse you back to health. And I was like, yeah, I started fueling a bit more. And she just looked at me and she was like, what are you doing? How did you not know this? But people that know it are off the worst though. Like guys who are training with her are pros or ex-pros. Like they go out for a four-hour ride and they'll have like tools in their water bottles, like not even a sip of water. And you're like, a beginner would never do that. But it's the experience just tells you, oh, it'd be grand. I'll get through it. Like, Yeah, exactly. And we've... Interestingly, once you're doing big hours, one of the things that we've started talking to our athletes about and they're starting to see some benefit is if you're going to train for, say, six hours a day, which is not out of the question, right? You've got six hours training and you've got eight hours, maybe more sleeping. Let's use eight hours and be generous. Yeah. Now you have 10 hours to eat all of your calories in, right? Aside from those six hours. So if the more calories you can take on the bike, the better off you may actually be in terms of getting enough fuel day to day, week to week, month to month to stack this training up to then be able to perform, but also to not get injured or not get overtraining or relative energy deficiency or all of those things, right? And they're huge problems that we have in endurance sport. So if you're doing two sessions a day or something like that, maybe the first session's about fueling for the second session. And look, not advocating that there's no role for low glycogen training or all those sort of things, but that, you know, there's definitely a role for not killing yourself because you think you, do it, you don't need it, right? There's a difference between I'm intentionally trying to lower my glycogen levels and, oh, I don't need it because I'm uh, whatever. Have you looked much into ketones? And I know it's a, it's a dirty word almost in world tour because I'm not sure if you've been following this debate. So uh, some of the teams are taking ketone stuff. Other teams have come out and banned the use of ketones. Maybe they're banning them because they're not provided from the team. This is just me with the skeptics on. They're not provided from the team and they are quite expensive. So it's just an easy way for them to say, look, we're not providing them because really they can't afford them in any way. But big teams like Jumbo Visma, they are providing them as standard to riders. What's your take on the use of ketones? Are they beneficial? I played around with them last year, but just impossible for me to create any sort of experiment because like, I wasn't training properly. Like I'm having a curry and two glasses of wine the night before and it's almost like oh, are those ketones working the next morning i'm like like i haven't a clue <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i know that feeling um look so my experience with ketones i was actually very low carb for a while around my first trail race um with M um mct oil and branched -chain amino acids nice uh unsurprisingly bonked really badly biohacker yeah yeah unsurprisingly <laughs> bonked terribly uh, at about an hour and a bit into a two-hour trail two-hour trail run so that was a fun one um, but no, so I've used uh, periods of before all the esters. So there's two big schools of ketones. There's a big delineation to make. There's the ketone salts, which you generally get in powder form and that sort of stuff. They're very, like, most companies are doing salts. And then, cheap. yeah, a lot cheaper, not necessarily cheap, but a lot cheaper. Yeah. And then there's the esters, which is the stuff that tastes like rocket fuel, looks like rocket fuel, <laughs> the same price as rocket fuel. Um, and so these things, are, you know, that's the, the companies that you're talking about there who are sponsoring world tour teams. I haven't used any esters. Um, I am pretty keen to use some esters, but I haven't yet. I also haven't, I couldn't get any salts, any good salts in the Netherlands. I wasn't super keen. So now that I'm in the UK, I'm gonna buy a couple of salts and have a, have a play with Super Sapiens as well and see what it does to my glucose. The physiology says that generally ketones lower glucose, but I do know having heard some people talk that you can get both up. I'm not sure that's a good thing, which is an interesting thought. The only time in the body that you have high ketones and high glucose is in a, physiological situation that happens to type one diabetics called diabetic ketoacidosis. And it's life threatening. And because they don't have insulin, they have high ketones and high glucose. And it's pretty deleterious to them. I don't know if, you know, I'm pretty conservative with this sort of stuff. So I'm not sure that's good. But at the same time, I needed to set, dissociate the situation that got you there from the milieu that you're in at the time. Yeah. Right. So perhaps um, I need to give it some credit in that respect that, yes, okay, that only happens in one physiological situation. But when you're taking exogenous glucose and exogenous ketones, it's a different story. What I can say of having used some ketone salts was that is one of the, you know, when you talk about flow and the zone and being in the zone, it felt like I got that, but also with an extra halo of magic for about 45 minutes from taking the salts. And it was unbelievable. I'd be hungry, I'd take these salts, go for a run feel like I was running unbelievably for about 45 minutes and then just all of a sudden I've obviously used the ketones and now I'm back in a locker and now we're, uh, we've got to limp home. So, yeah. So is it just, and to sort of break it down and simplify it for me, but also for some of the listeners who aren't as scientific minded. So I've kind of looked at ketones and glucose as almost two different fuel types. So we have ketones, which are powering lower intensity activity. But where it got a little bit, you know, 
crossword for me, and you might be able to help me unpack this one. One of the recommendations I got from the physiologist who provided the ketones to test was, if I'm going to do a difficult session, to pair ketones with glucose for the session. So we had me making the ketone esters in little jelly blocks, and I take some of these jelly blocks, an impossibility to transport in your jersey pocket, by the way, just in case anyone is trying, transport these jelly blocks and take them just before an interval. Now, like, what's the science between pairing the ketones with the glucose? So ketones are in the body, they're made when you don't have much glucose and you're burning a lot of fat. And there's this, uh, some of the tissues in the body can't really use fat for fuel explicitly like you can, you know, like the rest of your body can, so the brain, the heart, et cetera, and they predominantly run on glucose. So when glucose is low, these can run on ketones specifically. That's the role for ketones in the body. And so taking ketones can work as an energy source. It is an alternative energy source that is separate to, it's kind of a separate one to fat, although they come from fat and it's separate to glucose, uh, even though they're generally present in low glucose. Okay. So what I'd say is it's just like, um, maybe the analogy to use is that of a car where you've got, you know, a hybrid, it's, can we use both at the same time, right? So can I use some electric power to top up my diesel or can I use some, you know, can I use some NOS to help my normal fuel, right? In, in the racing example from those Fast and Furious fans is like, can I use something, you know, can I use a secondary fuel source as well to provide more energy uh, through a different pathway? Because again, most of your pathways in the body are rate limited by something. So if if you've got a rate limiter, like how do we circuit like how do we uh, circuit break that? It's like let's use a different pathway. So the idea being to preserve a little bit of extra glucose for later on in the climb or later on in the race. Yeah, I think that's probably why they're using it. I'm I'm not that adept at um, some of this physiology. I was kind of big picture guy in medicine. That's just probably why I wasn't so good at medicine and probably wasn't wasn't so good at school. Was a big picture. So you know you would have to ask some of their physiologists as to what they think is happening or what they're measuring. Cause you know, they're probably measuring ketones as well. Um, they're probably measuring both and seeing, you know, where people feel good and, and perform well. So I won't speak too much there, but what I'd say there's two mechanisms. You could be sparing some glucose for sure. Um, you could also be sparing, uh, you could be using less glucose at the same intensity as well, which might be helpful uh, longer term. Interesting. Uh, and it may also, Given the situation that you have with ketones, it's foreseeable that they might limit use of some of the glucose-related pathways. So they may limit muscle glycogen breakdown or liver glycogen breakdown, which you know is kind of helpful if you think about it, given that you can't really replace glycogen that well once it's starting to be used or once it's being used. There's some people who say you can't replace it at all. There's some research that says you can. Generally, you probably can't if you're exercising at any intensity and not eating, you know, you don't have an IV of glucose. So for tour riders or for riders, it probably spares a little bit of that and maybe that's helpful as well so that later in the piece they have some glycogen there to use. Very, very interesting. Just to finish it up, uh, David, if we had an ideal world where anything could happen at Super Sapiens with no possibility of failure, what does the product look like inside the ecosystem You know, 12 months from now? So there's some exciting stuff coming that we have um, in the pipeline from, you know, obviously the product standpoint that we've already talked about, but there's also some other monitors coming. So in the perfect worlds, they would all be the same monitor. I don't think that's gonna happen. Uh, so there will be a lactate, a continuous lactate monitor, continuous uh, keto Amazing. monitors as well. Yeah, so we'll have those coming out. I don't know what timeline that is. I don't think that's 12 months. Um, I think lactate is closer than ketones. There's also a continuous alcohol monitor for those inclined, probably the recreational cyclist. <laughs> um, so, you know, those things will help uh, understanding things. Cause I think, Something that might be a bit of a, an elephant in the room is that lactate kinematics really affect glucose kinematics. And it's not really talked about that much, but it is very much the case. So lactate can be converted back across into glucose. Uh, and so understanding your glucose requires some understanding of lactate, I think, as well. So I think that will provide an unlock for some people uh, that would otherwise not understand it. Uh, and I think, you know, that's an interesting... People who may say that, listen, I don't need a continuous glucose monitor, probably there's a subset of them who say, yeah, but I do need a continuous lactate monitor right? Like that yeah. there is a, it's a different demographic. So, um, I think that's helpful as well. It's a, uh, it's super interesting. I love the product. I love what you guys are doing. And thanks for taking the time to chat on the Roadmap podcast. No, I appreciate you having me on. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Have you ever wondered how good you could actually be? Each of us has a unique set of circumstances with work, family and social obligations, but we also want to fulfill our potential in cycling. Okay, okay, maybe you won't ever win the Tour de France, but for most of us, this is what cycling is about. 
So let us build you the perfect training plan around your lifestyle that's totally unique to you and will help you finally realize your cycling dreams. So whether you're just getting started on the bike or if you're a more seasoned cyclist, we have a suitable coach for you. So why not schedule a call with us and we can have a chat about how we can help you go further than you ever dreamed of in your cycling and fitness goals. Go to roadmancycling.com forward slash contact or pop me an email directly to sarah at roadmancycling.com.